0: Wow, those are genuinely creepy stories.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another very special and very spooky episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm great, Chris. Wishing
0: all our listeners happy Halloween. Um, And yeah, these are some of my favorite episodes to record. So let's get into it.
1: I think this is a uh, our only like recurring annual episode is the uh, the horrors of reenacting annual Halloween special This is the fourth one that we've done uh, for anybody who um, hasn't been listening to the podcast since we began, our old horrors of reenacting episodes are some of the most listened to episodes we've ever done. Um, you've got us kind of sharing stories uh, of things that are kind of paranormal and spooky from our years of reenacting, and also uh, stories of stuff that was just plain horrible, you know, when everything goes wrong. So there's some, uh, some hair-raising stories, there's some funny stories, but you can go back and check check out those episodes if you want.
0: Certainly a lot of fun to be had in recording these, that's for sure. So
1: um, for today's episode, we have a whole bunch of listener stories that I'm excited to share. Um, just a little bit of a sort of a disclaimer here. Some people may know that I have been involved in actual paranormal investigation and in various weird capacities uh, in my life over the years. Uh, this is not... Part of that, uh, these stories have not been uh, you know, investigated. I have made absolutely zero attempt to verify any of the details and I uh, cannot vouch for the accuracy of any of the statements shared by any of our listeners. This is purely for fun and um, I hope that you kind of take this in the spirit of some fun uh, campfire stories. Well, beautiful. Chris, uh, take us away. All right, well, uh, before we really get rolling here, I did want to just touch on something that happened to me that uh, I haven't talked about before on the podcast, and I was reminded of this by my friend Hans, who is a member of my group. He, uh, When I put out a call for people to submit stories for this episode, he reminded me of a a kind of a horrible thing that happened um, at an event that we were both at. I guess he's got like a crown on one of his front teeth or some kind of dental work where he has a sort of an appliance that's permanently affixed inside his mouth.
0: If I'm remembering right, he had recently had it replaced or operated on or something. So like it, it was like fresh in his mouth, you know, so... It
1: was like a front tooth. Yep. And so we were at an event and it was in the evening. The sun had gone down. It was dark outside it was a kind of a informal, laid back part of the event. People were socializing and drinking. People were gearing up for the event the next day. All right, I think it was. Yeah, it was Friday night. Yeah, right? yeah, I believe it was Friday. And uh, suddenly Hans lets out a scream as he's standing in kind of a random spot in the grassy field, and he realized, uh, to his extreme horror, that this dental thing that was very expensive had fallen out and landed in a, in the grassy field. And the grass was kind of unkempt. And, you know, you got to think the chances of finding this thing again are basically zero.
0: You're basically describing a needle in a haystack situation. And like I remember, a literal haystack. Yeah, like a literal haystack. Um, and uh, if our listeners aren't aware, something else that Chris does, which is cool, is he is very adept at looking for... Native American stone tools and other prehistoric historic artifacts. So that factors into uh, the tale uh, that is about to be told here. Well,
1: I suddenly became aware that people were like... Using flashlights and and lanterns and whatever they could to illuminate the ground and seemingly scouring the ground looking for something I was looking but I think in my mind I had this pessimistic view that I was
0: never gonna find this thing, you know Like I think I was just like looking because you know Hans is my friend and I wanted to like seem to be helpful but like I did not think this thing would be found I thought that you know, like Hans would be at the money and like there's no way like I'm sifting through tall grass um, in you know in the
1: semi-dark and I'm like this
0: is this is futile there's there's no there's no chance in
1: hell. Well looking looking at things on the ground is basically like a fun uh, sub hobby of mine And, and a specialty has been alluded to and so I strode over there it's like what's going on here. And it's like, oh, this is a disaster. Hans has lost sort of his his tooth, basically, and um, it's somewhere in this area in the grass. And uh, you know, we're we're kind of looking around for it, but but we don't think we're going to find it. And I was like, oh, I'll find it. Uh, it's a skill that I have. And what was it like a minute or something? It was
0: something like it was it was under two minutes. Yeah, you know? it's like
1: a time measured in seconds. Really. Uh,
0: I believe, uh, Hans like, was aware when the tooth, like, left his mouth, you know, he was, like, roughly aware of the quadrant of the field in which the thing had fallen out, you know, and, like, still, I mean, it could have gone into the grass and, like, become one with the earth, you know, I, I, we were all looking around in that area and had been for, like, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, you know, and with no luck, and Chris strides into the situation, you know, and, uh,
1: like, what's going on? (laughs) Uh, and immediately I, I finds it. it. I found it immediately. Yeah, yeah.
0: it was uh, so it was like magic, you know? I'm like, this guy's a fucking wizard.
1: <laughs> so it, it could have been a horror story, but it wound up being just kind of a story that we could all laugh about later.
0: Sure, sure. So um, was it last year at this the same event, uh, the Haydenville event, where I observed the weird lights in the sky? Or was it two years ago?
1: I don't even remember what you're talking about.
0: We saw. Um, so I. Oh,
1: I do remember now what you're talking about. Yeah. So it was two years ago, I
0: think. Two years ago. Okay. So it, it was. It was amusing to me because it was Saturday night, and there was like a party atmosphere, and we were all like sitting around drinking, and the 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 landowner um, to sort of entertain the reenactors decided to basically go far away in the field with some fireworks, and these were, like, nice, like, semi-professional fire fireworks, and, like, have a little display for everybody's amusement, you know, which was cool, I, I like fireworks, um, but, like, as this was going on, I observed this weird chain of lights in the sky that I'd never seen before, and, you know, like, the fireworks have started... And my eyes are not on the pretty firework lights, but rather on the strange chain of lights that are making their way out across the sky. I'm like, is that? Are those flares? Is that a UFO? Like, am I seeing a UFO at a reenactment? You know, and other people are looking too, and like, I've never seen anything like that. You know, like, what is it? The, is it that? You know, like Elon Musk satellite chain? No, no, I've seen that before, and it looks different. Um, and so. This thing eventually kind of faded, and um, later on, we did determine that it was the weird Elon Musk satellite chain, Starlink, I think it is. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's just it was amusing to me because you know, of course, the, the, there was this attempt at a fireworks display that was sort of thwarted by uh, what we perceived to be a UFO sighting. <laughs> yeah, so somewhat anticlimactic, but just a memory that came into my mind of the same event anyways chris yes, those
1: are our uh, our own kind of not very exciting stories but our our listener stories are great so let's just uh launch into those um the first one comes from our friend gunter Rapp, and he says i've had a few paranormal encounters when i was a young kid and teenager doing american civil war reenactment but the one that stands out to me was very recent and it was far from the civil war a friend and i were driving in my car late one night on the freeway coming back from a country fair this past summer when we both heard a voice that sounded like it came from a G.I. Joe action figure recording or toy radio. That's a direct order. Do it now, it said. It sounded like an old radio transmission, thinking more about it now. The direction it was coming from sounded like it came from the middle console or behind us. We both were in shock and were trying to figure out where it came from. The car's radio wasn't on and my friend wasn't on her phone. The only thing I could think of was the new bags of Vietnam-era field gear I picked up for a buddy last week and sitting in the back of my car. We both never talk about this kind of stuff together. I've been trying to stay away from the paranormal lately because I was involved in the past. I'm left, I'm left with questions that I wish I knew the answers to.
0: Wow. Wow haunted vietnam field gear perhaps that's that's cool that's spooky
1: you know i don't i don't really have like an official real pragmatic position on whether or not it's possible for like you know military gear or literally any kind of object to become haunted or imbued with a spirit or whatever but i've heard a million stories like it and i think they're fun stories for sure
0: sure they're fun stories and i mean on a sort of spiritual level, I, I don't want to place too much stock in this, but you know, if it, perhaps objects or places uh, that are around people who are experiencing a very sort of strong emotion as one might, uh, when they're about to go into battle, might pick up some sort of a residue, you know, or I've heard this explanation given for hauntings um, and uh, I I'm not going to make any kind of official position on it, but it's it's cool to think about, you know
1: I mean, in years of collecting, I've heard uh, so many stories where um, somebody has... Maybe they have a huge collection, but there's just one item that gives them a weird feeling. Or, you know, one item that um, their significant other doesn't want uh, on display in the house. You know, it could be some innocuous thing, like a, a specific belt buckle or uniform item. Uh, and in fact, I even uh, I even bought something one time uh, in part because it was in an antique store and the woman had, the woman who ran the antique store had priced it very low. And she was like, that thing gives me the creeps. I just wanted out of here. Mm. And you know, it, it was like a world war two German item. So maybe, you know, it could be right. That just that it, it was creepy because it's kind of a, a piece of Nazi memorabilia basically. But, um, you know, I got the impression from the woman that she was like particularly creeped out by this thing. I mean, look, some, some of this stuff was worn by people when they died, you know, some percentage of the stuff was, so, um, it is kind of creepy. It is definitely creepy. And I mean, if, uh,
0: this, if there is any sort of merit in any of this sort of paranormal or spooky spiritual stuff, I do, uh, I do believe that, you know, either some people are crazier than other people or some people are maybe more sensitive to, you know, certain items or certain forces that are sort of beyond, uh the understanding or grasp of science, you know? So again, not taking an official position, but yeah.
1: Ben, I think if you died and could choose to haunt something, you would haunt a helmet, I imagine. Oh, I
0: um, I almost certainly would. I almost certainly would.
1: <laughs> Our next story is from Franz Bonnerkampf. He writes, I started reenacting at the tender age of 10, obviously having a wild 10-year-old boy running around by himself at a 13th century reenactment event unsupervised, with weaponry, is not a good idea. To remedy this, the group I joined at the time had a lengthy discussion with my parents and came to the conclusion that the best course of action would be to get my father involved in the hobby as a supervisor for me. About a year into the hobby, I'm 11 years old, I attended a multi-period event, which shall remain nameless as it still runs annually, in the northwest of England near the English-Welsh border. We arrived on the Friday night with my father and got set up with the group, ready to get going on the weekend. It's about 7 p.m. in mid-July, a pleasant evening. We're all sitting around the campfire, enjoying ourselves, doing what reenactors do, when we are approached by a very tall man with a bald head and long gray beard, we assume from another group. He was wearing modern clothing. He parks himself next to the campfire and gets talking. We're all getting along well. When all of a sudden, he violently snaps to his feet, looking at the younger members of the group in turn with his large old eyes and shouts, I'll be seeing you all tomorrow. Tomorrow comes because it was the early 2010s and we were a group which didn't care about authenticity. We stumbled out of our plastic tents, got the fire for the day going, ready for the members of the public. 10 a.m. comes around. The church bells nearby do their thing. The bearded man from the previous night emerges from the crowd dressed in green and gray trousers with a black waistcoat and a monocle he barks at us to line up for a morning parade okay we all think this is weird we aren't a military group why are we lining up we query him he claims to be the event organizer he then orders an authenticity check Uh, This authenticity check involved taking group members' trousers down and feeling and examining the accuracy of our underwear. Yeah, Understandably, everyone is uncomfortable, and nobody does it. He promptly gets told to fuck off by a former Royal Marine in our group. He has a go at examining my underwear, but I was luckily too fast. Our group leader complained to the real event organizers who do not even know a balding man with a gray beard, never mind one who was involved with organizing the event. The aforementioned creepy man was walking around the event ground when he was decked by two burly police officers who (laughs) threw him into their wagon. (laughs) Clearly, he had been doing the same thing to other groups. According to one officer, he had a history and was a known figure. The event was a bit of a shit show in general, but this was the big horror from the event.
0: Oh, jeez. Wow. I mean, look, I'm glad he got what was coming to him. That's that's frankly... The implications of that are honestly frightening and no laughing matter, but yeah, um jesus
1: well it's it's totally uh believable in the sense that i've gone to events where it's like okay who's in charge here yeah and someone stands up and says me and you're just kind of like okay this is the guy that's in charge sure i mean but maybe it's just some maniac maybe it's some maniac
0: like i remember i was at uh like the first stalingrad event in that they did at the youngstown factory uh which is no longer running and um i didn't you know I didn't really know, you know, who was in charge or whatever, you know. I just kind of arrived, and I was with some people, and we kind of, like, organized ourselves into this this little crew. And then this, like, guy in a, you know, this this guy in a fur coat with this, this command presence, like, comes in and tells us to post sentries. Um, and, I, and he is speaking in, like, a convincing Russian accent. And I assume that this man is, like, some member of the staff who's, you know doing a bit and it turns out no he was just some sort of a he was just some sort of another reenactor who was kind of playing you know and uh yeah it's it's funny like i feel like at at events where people don't really know what's going on you know you can i'm not telling people to do this but you can like show up and you know convince people to like do a thing, you know, and unfortunately, this, what you're describing, this was like some sort of nefarious situation. Yeah, um, that is horrific.
1: Our next story is from Joseph Weyer, and it's kind of a deep dive on a series of events that happened to him uh, in one place, uh, related to attending reenactments, so um, buckle up and uh, get ready to hear about this spooky place in England. So, He writes, here's my story. This took place over quite a few events from around August 2020 to November 2021, as we used the same site for training events and private battles. The group I used to go with, I'm no longer a member of. So in August 2020, I was invited to an event with an SS group here in England at a place called the Muckleborough Collection at the site of the old MOD Weyburn in Norfolk, I arrived on the Friday afternoon, and everything seemed normal. It seemed like a nice place. The group I was with was using that weekend as a training weekend, and the next day, the leader of the group showed me around the area with another guy. The area was quite large, and from one side of the land to the other, it was roughly three miles. On the site was plenty of bunkers and pillboxes, most of which were from World War II. However, there was one from World War I. There was also an anti-aircraft emplacement with three Bofur anti-air guns and an airstrip, as well as a lot of old MOD buildings like barracks, blocks, and sheds, etc. My first experience occurred on the Saturday. We were walking the site and went into one of the bunkers over on the far side of the airstrip. And while inside, I couldn't help but have an unsettling feeling. I had my full kit on, which consisted of my uniform and my rifleman kit. I was wearing my soft cap and had my helmet hooked over my ammunition pouch with part of the chin strap around the hook of the Y-strap. While inside the bunker, the leader of the group was talking, and I was standing still, listening. Then all of a sudden, my helmet dropped, and it dropped with quite a considerable force, enough so that it left a large dent. We all stopped and looked at it, and we couldn't figure out how it dropped, We made a few attempts to replicate how it may have dropped, but we couldn't figure it out. It seemed as though someone had lifted it up and dropped it, but the thing is, no one did. We left the bunker pretty quickly. Nothing strange happened for the rest of that weekend. The next time we went up there for another event the following month, I asked the unit leader about what happened last time. He took me to one side and said, Mate, I didn't want to say anything to you last time in case you never came back here again. The thing is... There are some strange things that happen here, things we can't explain. This place, it is quite haunted. When he told me this, things sort of began to make sense with what had happened in that bunker. That same weekend, a woman had come along who was a photographer. She'd come to take photos of the unit down in the wooded area. It also turned out that she was a psychic medium. When we walked around the site during the day doing our training, she said that we weren't alone. She said she could sense entities around us. She also went into that bunker, and she later said, there's something evil in there that doesn't want us here. Ever since she told us that, I never went inside that bunker again, and every time I walked past it, I felt a bad feeling. Later in the evening, the unit leader told me of the reported ghost sightings. He told me that in one of the buildings where deliveries are accepted, there are reports of a ghost of a former sergeant that was stationed there who accepts deliveries from the military and from civilian companies. And when the museum asks where the deliveries are, the companies or military say that a sergeant accepted them. And when they ask them to describe the sergeant, they describe a man who had been dead for over 30 years. Another ghost sighting is the ghost of the museum founder who haunts his former office in the museum. He's reported to sit at his desk and walk around the office. Another ghost in the museum is a nasty spirit who haunts the back of the museum near the cafeteria. It's believed this is the ghost of a sergeant major who murdered his wife and stuffed her body in a travel trunk back in the 40s or 50s. Her body wasn't found for over a year. There's also the ghost of a little boy who's reported to be in the cafeteria. This little boy is only seen by children. Most parents believe their kids have an imaginary friend, and then this ghost follows them home. Many, many people have encountered this spirit. It's believed the little boy died in a shipwreck that ran aground right off the coast behind the museum during a storm in the 1600s or 1700s. The ship which I can't remember the name of, was a Spanish ship that had sailors on board with their families. There were women and children on board, and very, very few people survived the wreck. On the site, at the World War I bunker, there's about six ghosts, which are all women. They were killed when one of the explosives they were handling blew up and killed them all. They've been seen a few times, but usually most people only see orbs around that bunker. The bunker was sealed shut, and no one has been in ever since. Occasionally, you can hear what sounds like women talking near the bunker. Another time, we were up at the site. One of the couples who were there went up to the coastline to watch the sunset one evening. On their way back to camp, when it was just about getting dark, they said they saw someone. They thought it was one of us. They stood and called out to this person, but they never replied. The husband stepped forward, asking who this person was, but then the person turned and began to walk and disappeared. This left the couple confused and a bit shaken up. They came back to camp and told us. The area this occurred in, we weren't aware of any ghost sightings, so this left us all a bit confused and feeling a bit uneasy. On another occasion, the group leader was telling us about the spirit behind the back of the museum near the cafeteria. He said it's an absolutely evil spirit, and he advised us not to go around there after dark. He said he refuses to go there, as did a few others. I also didn't want to be around back there, but my father and a couple of the younger guys decided to walk around the back. The younger guys said there was an eerie feeling, and they didn't dare look through the windows. Another one took a picture, and in the picture, you could see what looked like a distorted face in the window. My father stopped dead in his tracks and began crying. The younger guys got my father back to camp, but after a few hours, my father said he had to go back, but around the other way. They headed back round, and the younger guy said my dad stopped dead in his tracks and started crying in the exact same spot. They then came straight back to camp, and my dad went straight into the tent and went to bed. He didn't speak a word about what's happened. He tries to deny it happened, but I believe something truly spooked him. The last ghost up there, which is the one that absolutely terrifies me the most, and one in which I've had an encounter with face-to-face, which has left me somewhat traumatized, is the woman in white who's accompanied by three men. No one is certain who she is, but many believe her to be the ghost of the wife that the sergeant major murdered and stuffed into the travel trunk. As for the three men that are with her, there have been some theories. Some believe them to be her family, and some believe them to be her secret lovers. Others believe them to be lost souls that she has trapped. As for who they really are, it remains a mystery. This ghost has been cited by quite a lot of our reenactment group, and has been seen many times over the past year that we were going there. The first sighting was by the group leader back in 2020, right before he went to bed. He stepped out of his tent to go to the toilet. He looked up and saw someone standing by the Falklands War artillery piece at the museum. At first, he thought it was one of our guys on the phone or something. Then he saw another figure walk over towards the other. Then a third figure stepped out from behind the gun. He then realized that they were ghosts. He looked up towards the top of the hill, past the big gun, and saw the woman in white to the left of the V2 rocket. He realized she was looking straight at him and she began to walk towards him. The leader of the group ran straight back inside his tent. Later that night, one of the former group leaders went to go to the toilet and when he got out of his tent, he looked over and outside the leader's tent was the woman in white and the three men staring at the leader's tent right outside the tent flap. He went to the toilet and went back to sleep and didn't think anything of it until the morning when the leader was telling us what he saw. The next time we were up there, Another member saw her up on the hill with the three men not far behind her. He looked back to where we were, then looked back up the hill, and they were gone. He didn't think much of it. He thought he was seeing things. That same weekend, the psychic medium was there, and she encountered the woman in white. She told us that she's not a good spirit and that she absolutely hates men as she was murdered by a man. She said that the men that are with her are her family and that they're protecting her. The last time I went to this site, which was where I had my encounter, as did many others, was in November of 2021. It was at this event where the encounter I had left me truly shaken and sort of traumatized. The first of us to have the encounter with the woman in white was one of the young members who had gone to the ablutions block in the compound. He had to go to the far side of the compound as the ablutions block on the near side was out of order. On his way back, the woman in white was standing in front of the gate with the three men. As soon as the young member saw them, he turned and ran. He went through the gate on the far side and ran back around to camp. He was left quite visibly shaken by what he said he saw. He said he saw her face, but it was blank. There was no eyes, no nose, and no mouth, and it was as white as a piece of paper. The next person to see her was later in the evening around midnight. A lady from the British group that was there said she was making her way back to her tent when she saw the woman standing just inside the compound with her back to her. She said as soon as she saw the woman, she made a quick dash to her tent to where her husband was as it frightened her a bit. When I had my experience, I was in my tent. I woke up. It must have been around 2 or 3 a.m. I looked over and my father was asleep, but sitting at the end of my father's cot bed was the woman in white. She sat looking down, and I stared at her in disbelief. I never thought that I'd ever see her, but I couldn't believe it. She sat there, and then she slowly looked up, looking straight ahead, and as soon as she began to turn to look at me, I saw her face. Quickly, I pulled my blanket over my head. The sheer sight of a person with no face petrified me. I couldn't bear to look, and I couldn't go back to sleep. I was so scared. I peeked through a gap, and standing right next to me, I could see what looked like black ammo boots and the old battle dress style wool trousers. I have no idea if this was one of the three men or if it was the sergeant major, but it frightened me. I don't know how long it was between each time I looked, but each time they were still there. Eventually, after what felt like an eternity, I could hear the voices of my group members. After a short time, I plucked up enough courage to take a look And they were gone. The tent flaps were blowing in the breeze and daylight was shining through. I got up and I went outside. I went straight to the others and told them what happened. The others, even though they hadn't experienced it, were also shaken by what I'd said. After this, I've never been back to Muckleboro. I'm no longer with the group, so I won't be going there again. However, the events that transpired that night have lived with me. And even after a year, I still see her in my dreams and when I close my eyes. Sometimes I feel as though she follows me. I see her at home and at work and at other events. I've never been scared by anything like this, and I feel it will leave me traumatized for years to come. Once you see something like this, you'll never unsee it, and it will leave you mentally scarred for life. This is my story, and I'm sure many will find it entertaining, and some may find it disturbing. But overall, it makes for a spooky tale.
0: Wow, those are genuinely creepy stories. Um, I think the... Uh uh, I mean, this is because I'm probably a helmet nut, but the bit from that that stuck with it the most is the dent in the helmet. Because, I had that
1: same thought about yeah. you. like that's the real horror story here yeah. for Ben. For
0: sure. <laughs> well, that yes, indeed. But I mean, even if it was a, a repro helmet with the the metallurgy um, just being, you know, not tempered uh, and or heat treated as originals were, like it still does take a fair amount of force to be able to do that. So yeah, that that is. But no, no, those are that's that is a those are some interesting stories um and uh, you know like a skeptic might say oh it's just a bad dream or something but if it sticks with you like that then maybe there's something to it you know
1: well you know it reminds me of uh, some of the places where we've done events well to- I, w- I was thinking Mifflin you yeah, know Fort like two uh, t- t- you know.
0: yeah that's right yeah there was the place in actually that reminds us I know I've told the story before about the place in one of the World War II bunkers where the light always went out. You remember, you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. Listen, to, You can listen to one of our previous Horrors of Reenacting episode to hear the full story behind that. But, yeah, no, there's definitely some spooky bunkers where... You know, weird stuff happens that we have not been able to explain.
1: You know, I think anybody with the kind of a history-oriented hobby will know about places that have a reputation like this or maybe have experienced something themselves like this. The, the other thing, too, is um,
0: so this uh, listener is speaking from England, and, of course, you know, there's... I, there's places where there there are buildings there that are, you know, far older than any buildings here in America. I mean, not that there weren't people, you know, living here for tens of thousands of years even, but um there's places which, you know, there's we don't have castles uh, you know, like uh like they do over there. And uh it's I think there is something to be said for spaces that feel truly ancient, you know, where people have lived and died. Um for literally centuries, if not millennia.
1: I imagine that, like every era of reenactors, if you got people in a room, whether it's Revolutionary War reenactors, Civil War reenactors, or, or you know, like I say, any era that um, they would have kind of stories about spooky stuff that yeah, happened. Yeah, a thousand re-enactors. percent. There's something about that's uh, actively trying to connect with the past, sort of, in this way that. I don't know. It's like a feeling of sorts. Sometimes
0: you do connect with the past and sometimes in ways you weren't expecting.
1: Maybe. Um, Our next account is uh, an account of some paranormal experiences that are kind of related to um, military history in a way they they don't really uh, take place at reenactments, but uh, it's from a reenactor and I think they're related. He writes, Hello, my name is Riley O'Neill, and I have multiple experiences to share, most of which take place in the Gettysburg National Battlefield. I have, on multiple occasions, visited the battlefields, and throughout my stays, both in the town and on the battlefield, I've had some interesting experiences, to say the least. One of my first memories of these experiences is when my family and I were staying at the Colton Motel. I was rather young when we visited the town and was very excited to be in town and experiencing all the historical amenities that it has to offer. After being on the battlefields all day, we eventually went to our hotel, and my mother took a picture of me sitting on the bed. And when the picture was shown, there were many orbs around, uh, both myself and the kepi hat that I had purchased earlier in the day. The orb that was closest to my face actually had a face inside of it, showing not only extremely distinguishable eyes and a mouth, but also a beard and the brim of a hat. Uh, Through the rest of the night, I could see what I believed to be shadows moving through the room, and I stayed awake for the rest of the night, trying to convince myself that I wasn't seeing them. My next experience was actually on a camping trip with a Boy Scout troop. While on the trip, we were able to stay at a campground that was on the battlefield itself. This campground is located at what would have been the launching point for Pickett's Charge. After a day of touring the town and battlefield, the troop had set up our camp, and by this time it had begun to get dark. And so not long after, our troop had gone to sleep. Around two in the morning, most of our troop was awoken by someone yelling the name of our scoutmaster. This was no ordinary yell. This was a full scream. Most of our troop emerged from our tents to find an explanation for the scream. We believed that somebody could have possibly been hurt while exiting a tent or had gotten lost while using the restroom. However, after doing a head count to make sure everyone was accounted for, we discovered that all scouts were present and that nobody had been injured or even out of a tent at the time we heard the scream. To this day, we still aren't sure who or what made that scream. My third experience with the paranormal takes place very close to the campground of my previous experience. The exact location was the Robert E. Lee Memorial. In October of 2018, my father and I went on a driving tour of the battlefield. Now, obviously, I've been to the battlefield many times, and to see the same statues and plaques again and again can get repetitive and admittedly boring. So my father and I were both at the memorial when he went to read a plaque about Wolfolk's battery that is roughly 100 yards away when I began to hear drum and fife music. My initial thought was that someone was going by and was following the audio tour and had their window possibly cracked open. However, when I went to investigate the music, I couldn't find anything, no vehicles or even anybody walking on the road. The music began to get louder and louder, like more instruments were being added. I began to walk back to the memorial to meet with my father, who had come back from reading the plaque, and asked him if he had heard anything, and he told me that he had heard the music begin and was looking for a source out in the walkway and paths near the plaque to no avail. It wasn't until an hour later that we actually saw another person. For some context, this was a very cold and rainy day in October. We were never able to find out who or what was playing music. These have been just a few of my paranormal experiences that I've had throughout the years. Well, wow, that's genuinely creepy.
0: Um, I feel I've heard uh, other accounts from the Gettysburg battlefield. I feel like that is a, a hot spot, if you will, um, for this stuff to happen. Like, I don't know where exactly i heard this story but i've heard accounts of people hearing voices in the darkness you know um where there was nobody there or maybe they enc- maybe like reenactors who are like encamped on the site encounter some figure who might be dressed in civil war garb but who is not any kind of known reenactor and who just kind of disappears um yeah so gettysburg i absolutely believe that you know, this, this this person has encountered some weird things there. Um, so, yeah. Uh,
1: I, I was reminded of an incident that happened to me, also not uh, reenactment-related, but history-related, where I went to Cumberland, Rhode Island, to look at a site that was um, where uh, Native Americans during King Philip's War had uh, tortured and killed some captives. And... Th- they buried the, uh, the later uh, colonial troops who came across the scene, uh, buried these victims, and made a stone memorial at the spot, a pile of stones, which is theoretically the oldest uh, veterans memorial in the United States. It's at wow. a place called Nine Men's Misery. And there are a lot of ghosts... Um, stories associated with the King Phillips war battlefield sites and with nine men's misery in particular. Um, one, sometimes people report hearing, you know, the sound of native American war drums or something like that. And, uh, as I was approaching nine men's misery for the first time, I started to hear this rhythmic drumming noise and it was like, I couldn't believe my ears. It was like, is this real life? Uh, but in my case, uh, uh, some investigation revealed that there was a field adjacent that was being used for practice by a high school marching band.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, was it a wood grass? Because we have heard <laughs> wood at events before, and it is this like weird drumming, you know? Like the earth is shaking almost, you know? Yeah, crazy little birds they are.
1: Um, all right, our next story is a great um, horror story of a true horror. It's by Callum Thompson. He writes, a few months after purchasing a pair of reproduction Canadian ammo boots and using them at some events and for hiking, I felt like wear on the sole was progressing a lot faster than I would have liked, and they were not very comfortable when walking on hard surfaces. So, in the interest of extending the life of the boots and making them more comfortable, I bought some original British Army hobnails and took them into the cobbler my family has been going to for more than 10 years. I asked if he thought I should have a new half sole put on soon. He said it was not necessary and he would just put on the hobnails. At this point, we shook hands and he told me he would call when they were ready. Three days later, I received the call. I rushed down to the shop as soon as I could, excited. When he shows me the boots, my hair stands on end. I enter fight or flight mode. To my absolute shock and horror, he had ground away about half the volume of the leather sole, removed all the hobnails, installed a rubber half sole, wasting more than half of the hobnails I gave him for the job in the process. After a bit of back and forth, he eventually agreed to fix his mistake, leaving me with a pair of boots with thinner soles full of holes and only marginally more hobnails than I started with. To this day, you can see the line where he ground away the leather to fit the rubber half-sole and some of the holes he filled with rubber cement because he didn't have enough hobnails after wasting more than half of them on the first attempt. Moral of this story, never trust somebody to work on your kit unless you are absolutely sure they know what you want.
0: Yeah, I definitely have experienced disappointment where, you know, I have a vision in my mind about what, like, a modern shop can be able to do you know be it like a tailor or a, or a cobbler or whatever and maybe they're used to working on modern footwear clothes and they do it like they would a modern thing and uh, you know sometimes they do a passable job but you know sometimes you get abject horror as you describe so so yeah no that's that's relatable and i think the moral of the story there is yeah like make sure you know, or like you properly convey to the person what you want or you you otherwise trust them in their ability to work on your kit, you know, like sometimes, you know, I, I think that's why like reenactor services like buy reenactors for reenactors are popular, you know, because these people know how to work on say, low boots and uh, actually you know, hobnail them correctly or whatnot, you know uh,
1: Back before I had a sewing machine Ben had a a woman in the city who was like a seamstress that he used to give her work to do. Oh, yes, this one. Okay, continue. (laughs) uh, I have a a, uh, tan and water camo smock that, is a reproduction World War II item that I wear for hiking and some outdoor stuff. I don't really wear it for... I don't wear it at all for reenacting. And I wanted to have some alterations made to make it a little bit more practical. So um, I thought that it would be cool to put some pockets on it. And I had some extra sumphtarn fabric. And um, I thought it would be cool if I could get... um, Two breast pockets and also two internal pockets with pocket bags in the style of the SS model 1942 smock. Uh, But patch pockets would be okay for the lower pockets, but I thought the internal pockets would be cool. And at that time, now I could do all this stuff myself. But at the time, I had no ability to do that stuff. And Ben had this tailor seamstress lady. She was doing great work for him. And so I explained to Ben what I wanted. And... Uh, he understood what I wanted. He said he would take it to his seamstress. So he dropped it off with a seamstress, and in, in addition to dropping off my smock, he also dropped off a Model 1942 SS smock so that she could see how the internal pocket bags were constructed. To copy,
0: basically, not to have any work done on it itself, you know? Just
1: as an example <laughs> of how the pockets could be made. And then, so, uh, it turned out she wasn't able to do the internal pockets, Um, I got the smock back. It had external patch pockets on the top and bottom, and they were cool. You know, that's fine. Uh, (laughs) Ben also got his SS smock back. With two brand new tan water camo <laughs> breast pockets affixed to it, which was never part of the plan.
0: And a total mismatch from the pattern. I I don't know, I think it was like plane Tree or Oak or whatever, you know. I, I don't know, I don't know which pattern it was, but it was <laughs> it the tan in water was a total mismatch, you know? <laughs> yeah,
1: so that was that was pretty uh, mirthful. Yes. Our next story is from longtime reenactor Wilhelm Oberdorf. It's about a place that you and I know well, Ben. It oh, says, okay. uh, 1995, Fort Mifflin, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Casemate number five. It was a Revolutionary War reenactment event. The British, including myself, were bunking in casemate number five. It rained for two days, and uh, because I was working, as I participated in the event, uh, we were waiting for... Uh, the bad news that we would have to evacuate the fort due to flooding. It rained hard that night. As we were laying in our bunks, I was talking to another fellow quietly. We saw a British soldier warming himself at the huge fireplace. I said to Jim, who's that? How'd they get in the casemate? The doors latched from the inside. He said, let's go see who it is. This British soldier, wow, what an impression. By the firelight, worn, kind of tattered for a British soldier. We got out of our bunks. Our shoes hit the floor. The heel plates made a noise. We looked up, and he was gone. Literally gone. The door had never opened. We went up to the fireplace, and where he had stood, the floor was soaking wet. Jim and I looked at each other and said, Wow, that was different. We didn't see any more of him the rest of the weekend.
0: Ah, that's really creepy. Uh, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, Fort Mifflin, you know, we've talked about it on the on the show before, but, you know, there's, there's definitely a history, a long-storied history there, and there's been a lot of death, and there's been a lot of sort of... It's been occupied by the British and, you know, the colonials, and it was in use, you know, through the Civil War up until, I think, the 20th century. So, yeah, um, I... I believe that. Um, also, too, I was just thinking, like, you described, you know, the the, the you got to look at the kit on this guy. I'm wondering, is it possible to base your impression off the kit of a ghost? You know, <laughs> like, could a, could a spirit or apparition assist you in uh, having a more correct impression?
1: <laughs> Imagine if you saw someone doing something wrong and you, like, called them out on being a farb and it turned out it was a ghost.
0: <laughs> oh, my God, that'd be great. That would be great.
1: All right, we have just a couple more stories. Um, this one is called The Gettysburg March, and it is actually by our friend Roger, and was uh, it was recounted to and transcribed by Jim. Oh, very cool. So he says, I was 17 or 18 years old and attending World War II weekend at the Eisenhower Farm when I encountered what I believe to be the ghosts of Longstreet's army. My friend and I, in GI uniform, grabbed a couple of beers each and went for a walk towards Emmitsburg Road late one night. We went through a hayfield and past a cornfield to the edge of the woods where a viewing tower stood. There, we just sat quietly, drinking, talking, and listening to the night sounds on a still, cloudless night. Suddenly, we both became aware of a different noise. At first, it sounded faintly of muffled metal clinking against metal. We thought perhaps it was coming from the observation tower above us, but it became very clear that it was coming from the woods that separated us from the road. As it got louder, we began to hear a soft rustling of leaves in the trees. Our skin crawled as we were now on full alert. Overwhelmed with uncertainty, I whispered that maybe we should get out of there. We started back towards the house along the edge of the cornfield. We were relieved to be off that hill and away from the shadowy trees. Suddenly, we realized that the corn stalks near us were swaying back and forth. Strangely, there wasn't a breath of air moving. We moved faster, but could not seem to get ahead of the living stalks. I was beginning to panic when an idea came to me. "'Tyler, stop,' I said. "'Why? I'm weirded out. We need to get out of here.' "'About face! Attention!' I commanded. We both came to attention." We then snapped a formal salute towards the swaying corn. Immediately, the rustling stopped, and the swaying stalks came to rest. Relief swept over us as peace was restored to the ridgeline. I'm convinced to this day that we experienced something existential, and I'm glad that I had the opportunity to salute those gallant soldiers who marched behind that ridgeline so many, many years ago.
0: Ah, that's genuinely creepy. I like
1: that. I like that a lot. I like that story a lot, too. I think it's well-written and... Sure, totally. I, I, I love these kind of reenactment ghost it's stories. It's
0: fantastic, you know? Like, I like that there's, like, a lore aspect to it, you know? Like, I... I... Also, too, like, I, I must commend uh, some of the people who wrote in just just in writing good stories, you know, or good accounts of things that happened to them.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily easy to, like, write down a story like this. No, 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 I, no. I commend everyone, you know, obviously very grateful for all the submissions, but everyone, I think, did a really good job. Our friend Rudy Lange, who has been a guest on here. Ah, beautiful. In the past. He says, my first event ever was at Newville, a massive World War I style land system in Pennsylvania. One dark, frigid night in February, we Germans from the 7th Company GD initiated a night trench raid. We stripped ourselves of anything that might make a noise and applied schmutz to our faces. Armed with shovels, we silently slid our way through the bomb craters and barbed wire entanglements. After what seemed an eternity, we were about halfway across no man's land. When a sudden bright red burst flew into the air as the enemy ignited a flare, we dove to the ground, hugging the earth as if our lives depended on it. I can recall my increased heart rate and thinking this will be the moment I die. I literally am going to be killed in this godforsaken mud surrounded by barbed wire with no one to mourn me. After a while, I slowly opened my eyes and turned my head slightly, only to discover that I was laying in the large makeshift cemetery in no man's land. The red glow from the flare made the headstones and wooden crosses stand out as if something from the foyer to hell. I thought, this is where I'll die. Anyways, it was one hell of a frightful introduction to reenacting. I
0: like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, Newville is a spooky place, especially at night. Um, I,
1: one of the things I really like about that story is that it's not like a real ghost story or anything. It's just a story about a moment that was so atmospheric and so evocative that yeah. it's frightening, which yeah. is you know, definitely something that I relate to in and reenact. Absolutely. that on some level I enjoy. You know?
0: Sure, 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 sure. It's a thrill. It's it's What he's describing is genuinely thrilling. Um, it's kind of what makes us come back for more if you will you know
1: i I love it when you can like get so deep into the you know kind of make-believe headspace you know aspect of it to where you're like i'm i'm out there living living yeah history for totally you know
0: totally totally
1: okay so the this is the very last one okay and it's from our our uh so important and valuable, but never heard from uh podcast partner, Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, who edits the podcast.
0: Beautiful. All right. Let's
1: hear Mike's story. He says, OK, so this one isn't directly reenacting related, but it's definitely one for everyone who loves history out there. I've been wanting to move out of my apartment in central London for some time now. It's slap bang in the middle of town, and while that might be great if you're a tourist, it's become kind of frustrating over the years. I want some outside space, which I don't have now, and the drive out of the city is a slog that can sometimes take up to two hours, meaning that getting to events and reenactments is a real challenge. So anyway, I've put my apartment on the market and have begun my search for a new home somewhere that caught my eye is a place called canterbury in the southeast of england it's a fairly vibrant small city that dates back to ancient roman times but also has the kind of modern infrastructure that i need plus it's close to the annual war and peace show which is one of the big events in the uk reenacting calendar anyway i'm um, looking on real estate websites and i come across a medieval tower there that was built in the 14th century Crazy as it may sound, this place has been converted into a modern-style home and was up for sale at a decent price. I know it may sound insane to our U.S. listeners, but much of Europe is littered with really old properties that most people don't want to buy, partly because they might fall down, but mainly because they're not configured in a modern style, can be drafty in the winter, and often have preservation orders slapped on them, meaning that you can't change the outside or sometimes the interior. But since when did history geeks ever worry about practicalities? So I find myself booking an appointment to go and see the place. To cut a long story short, I absolutely loved it. It was beautiful. Looked just like the keep of a medieval castle with solid stone walls, three feet thick and arrow slits for windows running up and down the main staircase. Sadly, though, my other half hated it and said there was no way on God's earth that they would ever contemplate living there. I was told to stop being so weird and forget about my obsession with history when looking for a new home. I closed the door behind me, pretending to have listened, but I was sold. I wanted the place real bad and was determined to buy it. Anyway, we drove back to London and I decided to have an early night, only to be woken by all I can say were the most graphic nightmares I think I've ever had. I'm not someone who dreams much or has nightmares, but these were off the scale. I won't go into detail, but they involved rabid dogs ripping each other apart while the grim reaper looked on. It was a very disturbed and sleepless night. The next day, I was kind of curious about why this had maybe happened, so I googled the medieval tower I had been to see the previous day. It turns out that it was built by a former archbishop who was involved in a rebellion against the king and was executed in 1391. Apparently, the execution was botched, and it took eight swings of the axe to sever his head. Now, he's reported to haunt the tower that I wanted to buy. Unsurprisingly, the real estate agent hadn't mentioned this, but it could account for why the property was a reasonable price and hasn't sold. I'm kind of skeptical when it comes to ghosts and the paranormal, but this episode really creeps me out. And no matter how much I love history and that tower, it's safe to say I won't be moving in. Well, if that is not a
0: portent, I don't know what is. That's genuinely creepy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a terrifying story. It is
0: interesting, you know, that I think as Americans, you know, sometimes somebody might share something like, you can buy, like, a medieval town or castle for, like, some ridiculously cheap value, you know, especially when you look at real estate in general, but it's it is cheap for a reason you know there are there's there's a lot of strings attached or other costs that yeah you you don't
1: know if maybe there was some guy (laughs) executed in there and it took eight swings of an axe to chop his head off yeah
0: yeah yeah like chris let's just cut the chase that's that's really it you know (laughs) i would pay extra for that (laughs) sounds that sounds really creepy It's one of those events where you can't really describe it. You sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. I think that female
1: reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage, but I do think that there is room to grow.
0: A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout, maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a
1: really nice refresh to get back out there. The reenactors' corner, bringing history to life. So, thanks again to everybody else, everyone who uh, submitted a story. And uh, it's been really fun uh, reading your stories and being able to share them with everybody else.
0: Absolutely. Thank you to all our wonderful listeners and uh, happy Halloween.
1: Yeah. Thanks also to the Patreon supporters. Without uh, our generous supporters, we wouldn't be able to keep this podcast going. So, um, you know, thank you guys so very much. Thank you again. So, everybody out there, uh, to all my friends and LARPAs out there, uh, stay safe. Don't eat too much trick-or-treat candy. Happy Halloween. I'll see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So, why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactor's Corner and you'll find us there maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how big or small, your monthly donations make a huge
0: difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month.
1: As ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. RetroMan, for editing the podcast.
0: We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at the Reenactor's Corner.